One of the founding members of the Black Women's Group was Olive Morris, who in her very short lifetime made an invaluable contribution to Brixton Black Women's Group, OAD, and the black communities in both Brixton and Manchester. Like Claudia Jones, she represents the kind of black woman who, over the years, have thrown themselves into the struggle in this country and made an indelible, if anonymous, mark. Words by Beverly Bryan, Stella Dadzi and Suzanne Schaefe from Heart of the Race, Black Women's Lives in Britain. Hello everyone and welcome to the History Hotline, the hottest line for all things black history and beyond. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 68 of the History Hotline. My name is Deanna Lincook and as always I will be your host today. If you hadn't already guessed, this episode is all about the life of Olive Morris and the book that I took the initial quote for this episode from is actually dedicated to Olive Morris and a lady called Sylvia Enrique who we will speak about um, in another episode um, and who are described as true sisters in the struggle. May this book keep their memory alive. And I wanted to do this episode for a very long time. I've wanted to do an episode about Olive Morris, but I think having done episodes now about OAD um, and about the Brixton Black Women's Group, which was the last episode, 67, it now feels as if the scene has been properly set to talk about Olive Morris um, and her life, her achievements. This episode will be split into five sections. We'll start with her early life and education. Then the kind of turning point in her life, or that that's how it's described anyway, um, where she's assaulted by the Metropolitan Police. Surprise, surprise. Part three will be about her activism um, more generally, and part four will specifically look at her housing campaigns and squatting. And part five will be a section called Life After Death, and that will become clear when we arrive at that point of the episode. Um, Olive Morris's life is is not one that I think prior to maybe conversations about the Windrush generation had been spoken about that much. Um, and I think it's really important that even though she was so young when she achieved all she did, um, you know, her life had value and importance. And it's so important that we honour that and celebrate that and keep her memory alive um, as the authors of Heart of the Race wanted. Olive Elaine Morris was born on the 26th of June 1952 in Harewood, St Catherine, Jamaica. She moved to Britain aged eight to live with her parents and from there went to a secondary modern school in South London where, you know, she experienced all the injustices and inequalities that the British education system had to offer. Um, She left at 16 with no qualifications, but undeterred, she went on to college to study her O and A levels um, whilst actually holding down a full-time job at the same time. Um, It's interesting to see once she's left, you know, formal schooling up to 16 and gone on to college, she's been able to sustain a full-time job and achieve A and O levels, um, you know, in a different environment, shall we say. She was a community leader, activist in the feminist, black nationalist and squatters rights campaigns of the 1970s. Um, And whilst, you know, this all took place in her early life in her teens and 20s um, it was at the age of 17 where she was beaten up by metropolitan police officers following an incident involving a nigerian diplomat in brixton south london 
and I think it's written that this kind of point in her life was quite a turning point um, in regards to the fight against colonialism, sexism and class discrimination and of course racism that black people were going through especially at that time in the late 60s, early 70s. I should have said this at the beginning but I will add a trigger warning here, um, conversations about um, violence, physical violence um, and sexual violence and harassment will be coming up in this um, incident with Olive Morris and the Metropolitan Police. So if you know that's not something you want to listen to um, and think about today, then here's a chance for you to maybe pick another episode. Um, feel free to, to take a moment. On the 15th of November 1969, Nigerian diplomat Clement Gomwalk um, was actually in Brixton. He was at the first black record shop in Brixton called Desmond's Hip City um, and he was confronted by the Metropolitan Police whilst he parked outside in his Mercedes-Benz car, which obviously um, is an expensive car. Um, He is a black man from Nigeria and he was driving um, this car, it was parked at the time um, in Brixton. Now, I will say that this story has been kind of told by people that were there at the time, local journalists, and also um, Olive Morris herself, after the event, has spoken about it in publications and in talks. So the information is from a variety of sources, um, and that's what I'll say about that. Um, Some of it doesn't match, I'll be honest. Um, But we obviously would probably give a kind of preferential ear to the words of Olive, Olive Morris herself, um, you know, who was who was a part of this incident, um, as opposed to maybe bystanders who may not have seen the whole thing. So, essentially, um, the Mercedes-Benz car um, that the um, diplomat was driving had a different number on the licence plate to the licence disc, um, so he was pulled over um, and stopped under sus laws which we spoke about last episode um, and it was basically a stop and search power um, they didn't believe that he was a diplomat um, of course probably assuming that he had stolen the car or that he wasn't lawfully driving it um, and a crowd formed around them as this altercation was taking place um, now the local journalist uh, mentioned is a person called uh, Ayo Martin Tejo and they wrote an account of the events um, a decade later, um, which is why I think Morris's account probably takes preferential treatment um, and probably more believable. Um, Not to say that anybody was intentionally lying, but, you know, um, in hindsight, things might be different. Um, But anyway, the journalist said that Morris pushed through the crowd Um, in order to try and stop the police from hitting the diplomat and then this led to the police assaulting her and several other people that were there at the time. Um, However, Olive Morris, um, in her account, said that she didn't actually arrive on scene until after the diplomat had been taken away into the police van and arrested Um, and the crowd was confronting the police about their treatment of um, the diplomat. Um, and so Morris and her friend were dragged away by the police um, and her friend was shouting, I've done nothing, um, and his arm was actually broken by the police. Um, she doesn't say exactly how she got involved, but the record um, states that she was arrested um, and beaten in police custody. She was dressed in men's clothing and had very short hair, um, I think the majority of her life. I don't think I've seen a picture of her with long hair. 
um, the police believe she was a young man. Um, and one of them was saying, she's not a girl, she's not a girl. Um, in this account, Morris then goes on to say she was um, forced to strip to prove that she was a woman um, and threatened with rape. Um, she said, and I quote, they all made me take off my jumper and my bra in front of them to show I was a girl. A male cop holding a billy club said, now prove you're a real woman, referencing his club, um, the baton that he would have carried as an officer. And he said, look, it's the right colour and right size for you. Um, and then swore at her and called her a black C word, which I'm not going to repeat because then I'll have to mark this um, episode as explicit. And yeah, it's just not necessary, but she was verbally assaulted, physically assaulted, threatened with rape, um, all in an altercation that had little to do with her in its inception. It was to do with the unfair treatment of this diplomat at the hands of the London Metropolitan Police. And, you know, it's interesting how she becomes involved in this as the rest of the crowd do, standing up for what is right in the community of Brixton. Um, And I think it's kind of it really symbolises her life, essentially standing up for communities like Brixton and like Manchester um, in terms of the injustices they were facing across the board. Um, Olive Morris's brother describes her injuries from that incident and said he could barely recognise her face. They beat her so badly. She was given a three-year suspended sentence um, and fined £10. Um, it was later reduced to one year um, the sentence, um, and she, this was for assaulting a police officer, now, I don't know Olive Morris, um, but if her brother could barely recognise her face when she, he saw her after, then I don't really know how that matches up to anything she could have done to an officer, but I wasn't there, so let me not judge, but anyway, she was, um, arrested for that and, and charged and very similar sentence to people like the Mangrove Nine um, would have faced um, assaulting an officer or evading arrest um, and that kind of thing. But this experience for Olive Morris was very much kind of a sign of what was to come and it shaped her, I would say. Um, she became a radical feminist and a Marxist, Leninist, communist um, and that was where her politics were rooted. They were intersectional. Um, they focused on the impact of colonialism, Caribbean and in Africa and Asia, sexism in Britain, class discrimination, of course, um, and focused on racism because she was living and experiencing life in Britain at this time. But obviously with roots in the Caribbean, would understand colonialism. She was there till she was eight years old. I'm sure she would have seen some things, heard some things, lived through some things that would have also shaped that side of her politics as well so this was um you know a real turning point and she was only 17 at this point by the way so imagine going through all that anyway as a as a grown adult but now add the fact that she was only 17 how that must have shaped her perception of britain of of racism of sexism um and everything else olive morris then in the beginning of the 1970s joined the youth section of the British Black Panther movement, which we have spoken about on this podcast before, as I'm sure you will know. Um, they were all about black power, they were pan-African, um, and they were nationalists, black nationalists. And again, in a similar way to Olive Morris, um, well, it would probably be argued that kind of that, that would have shaped Olive Morris's politics as well. 
um, being of Marxist-Leninist political ideologies and traditions. Um, But it was around this time, as you know from this podcast and other parts of black history that you might have heard, um, the late 60s, early 70s were just really trying times for black people in this country. Um, Race relations and tensions were just at an all-time high. Um, And it was during this time that there was a trial of the Mangrove Nine, there was also the trial of the Oval Four, um, which I haven't done an episode on, and I definitely will one day, so stay tuned for that. Um, but at this point, actually, um, Olive Morris um, is involved, is arrested and involved in a scuffle with officers outside the Old Bailey, um, alongside Darkus Howe, actually, um, and another unnamed person. Um, they were charged with assault, occasioning actual bodily harm. In a very similar way to the Mangrove Nine trial, um, they took quite a American Black Panther Party-esque approach to this. Um, and they were going to, you know, really research the judge, the jury, and try and kind of put, position themselves in the best place possible to win this trial. Um, they found out, actually, that the judge, John Fitzgerald Manan, um, was part of the Crown Council in Kenya that had prosecuted participants in the anti-colonial Mau Mau uprising. Um, so that was already kind of not going to bode very well for them. Their politics were probably polar opposite. They actually also requested that the jury be of black or working class or both um, backgrounds and origins. Um, and that would probably ensure that the trial was, I won't say fair, but it would give them a kind of a little, it would level the playing field out just a little bit because, you know, assuming that people of a same background as them, black, working class or both, would understand um, the kind of the politics, the struggle and the fact that the police were genuinely, you know, tyrants, um, shall we say, in the time. Um, Now, when the um, trial kind of came to to pass in October 1972, um, nine police officers gave evidence and it was all contradictory, which is just like the Mangrove Nine trial in some ways, um, including um, the footwear worn by Olive Morris because she was accused of kicking a police officer, um, but they couldn't identify correctly the the footwear she was wearing so if you're claiming someone kicked you you could probably at least make out you know the kind of shoe they had on but they couldn't do that um and she was actually found not guilty of that charge um the prosecution's case essentially fell apart with all that contradictory evidence um and you know it didn't it didn't go the way they planned let's just say so that was again another um experience that uh, olive morris had with the police and now the justice system um and again, would have shaped her and her experiences and what she went on to do. From there, um, Olive Morris was one of the instrumental women who was um, part of OAD, the Organisation of Women of African and Asian Descent, um, which then kind of ended and turns into, well, one of the branches of that um, coming out of it is the Brixton Black Women's Group. Um, which was founded in 1973, which we spoke about last episode. Um, And this collective explored the experiences um, of women that had kind of formerly been in the Black Panther movement um, and also created a space for 
black women, um, Asian women also, um, and to discuss um, political matters um, and some of the things that were impacting them specifically as black women because they were struggling to organise within movements for black liberation more widely because they were dominated by men and they weren't really given um, a, a space kind of within those movements to discuss things like sexism um, because you know the perpetrators of that are black men most of the time or some of the time in this case um and so you know within um these groups that she was a part of um her feminism would have obviously been used here and developed and she um would have been part of publications um such as speak out that came out of um the brixton black women's group there was also the heart of the race which i've used earlier um and that was published in 85 um and then dedicated to olive morris who would have passed away by this point um it was republished in 2018 which is why i have a copy um of the new uh, version um by verso books but that was just a sign of some of the things she did in regards to her activism um and now in our fourth section we're going to think specifically about housing campaigns and squatting which is not an issue i've spoken about too much on this podcast before um aside from maybe references to it in the context of notting hill um and slum landlords like peter rackman who was yeah basically just exploiting everybody he could to get as much money as he could um but in regards to housing um and squatting this was something that is very much part of olive morris's story um and so important that it's shared on account of housing needs um olive morris came to see squatting and occupations occupying buildings um as a way of establishing political projects um and as a form of protest and also as a way of you know achieving the goals that they needed to um so for brixton black women's group um so that they could remain autonomous um and not have to navigate within uh women's liberation movements in england that already existed um they squatted at 121 relton road um morris and liz Obi. um their belongings were taken and workers broke in and they eventually had to re-squat um, and made a deal with the estate agent um and this was on the grounds that the prices of flats and bedsits were too high um that's what olive morris said for the to the evening standard um and you know, the place that they then selected to squat became um, a hub for their activism. It hosted community groups um, for not only the Brixton Black Women's Group, but also Black People Against State Harassment. And Sabah Bookshop, which I mentioned in the last episode, was also set up um, by a group of local Black men and women that include Olive Morris. Um, And this was enabled to provide, enable the provision of books that would help diversify the curriculum so black history um, black literature and that kind of thing um morris and obi moved to 65 railton road um and 121 remains like a self-managed social center for um anarchist um and that existed till 1999 um and morris and obi as i said move on um, I re- believe that the Brixton Black Women's Group find like permanent 
um, a permanent place eventually. I think it took them two years um, for to home their movement and to kind of host a creche and to, to use it to look after um, children and to run workshops and like talks and things like that. Um, so that meant that, you know, this kind of initial squatting was of benefit and it was part of the kind of political movement at the time and also just a way of establishing physical space um, in a city like London. Now, Olive Morris then moves to Manchester. She studies economics and social sciences at the University, Victoria University of Manchester, um, between 1975 and 1978. And in the heart of the race, it says, this in itself was an important step for Olive, who believes in education for the people. For her, it wasn't about status, but it and was an example to many young black people of how to fight and win against a system which tries to push us to the bottom of the education pile and force us to compete against each other. So she wasn't just doing this because there was status attached to, you know, having education and degrees and um, titles, but also because it really did kind of put a middle finger up to an education system that she left with no qualifications at 16. And here she is, fast forward to 1975, starting a degree. Um, and her activism continued with her in Manchester. It would have been easy for her to just, you know, pour herself into her studies and nothing else, but she becomes involved in groups in Moss Side. Um, she co-founds a black women's mutual aid group um, and is able to continue her work um, supporting black communities, and in this case, in Manchester. Um, and one of the kind of campaigns that she worked on was actually against university plans to increase tuition fees for overseas students, um, which is interesting because, you know, she wouldn't have necessarily been classed as an overseas student. Um, she would have been a British citizen um, and didn't need to do that. But, you know, as I said, in regards to actually helping other marginalised people, and in this case, overseas students, she would go on a limb and protest against these things to try and make the situation better for others. And I think this is a, a theme that I'm hearing a lot. It She would do things, not because they were going to benefit her necessarily, but they would benefit marginalised groups of people, whether that be then when she was protesting or in the future, if those changes were implemented in the way that she hoped. Um, whilst there, she also helped to establish a supplementary school um, after campaigning with black parents for better education provisions. Um, that was something that was clearly a passion of hers, something that had affected her personally, that she was then going to try and change in the future. Um, she also travelled a lot um, with regards to her activism. She was in Italy, Northern Ireland, um, as part of a variety of student committees. And in 1978, I think this is a trip of a lifetime, she travelled to China um, with the Society for Anglo-Chinese Understanding. Um, and she wrote for the Brixton Black Women's Group newsletter, A Sister's Visit to China. Um, and this looked at community organisation in China um, and the, the way that they were working as part of a third world country. Um, and I said that in inverted commas, not that you could see. Um, but again, in the heart of the race, um, they, they note that Olive always identified the relationship between the struggles of people in the third world, like China, and those of the white working class. She recognised that it was a fight which had to be won through the contribution of both groups and that we would need to work together if we were about to bring any meaningful changes. 
So she understood that it wasn't just, you know, she wasn't just rooting for black people, shall we say, marginalised people, working class people, people of third world countries, you know, people that were fighting up against imperialism, colonialism, sexism, violence, racism, all of those things. Um, And in going to China, she was able to study this and analyse the way that they were working um, in that country. And whilst that was somewhat of a whistle-stop tour throughout um, Olive's life, um, she only had a short life, um, unfortunately. And in our final section, Life After Death, um, which might be a strange title, but I think her legacy and her flowers have not really... They weren't given to her in her life um, so much. Um, But since her death, um, and, you know, as we kind of relearn about some of these figures that have been erased from British history, it has been kind of now that her recognition and the flowers that she deserves have been given to her and unfortunately um she went on a cycling trip to Spain in 1978 and she started to feel ill when she returned to London um she went to King's College Hospital and she was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin lymphoma in September 1978 unfortunately her treatment was unsuccessful and she passed away on the 12th of July 1979 in Lambeth at the age of 27 now of all the things I said she did, for me, it always shocks me to know that she died at 27. Because I'm close to 27. And not to say, not to compare, but that that feels short. That doesn't feel like a, a life lived out. Um, but she was still able to leave such a mark on the world as I started this um, podcast with. That mark that she left is so, so strong and so bright. Um, despite the fact that she only lived to 27. Um, Her fighting spirit really lived on and inspired so many other movements and people that have come after her. She's inspired me. Um, And so, you know, she's been commemorated um, in Brixton, in London more widely. Um, Lambeth Council named a building after her. Um, The activist group Remembering Olive Collective, the ROC. Friends colleagues comrades have remembered her and dedicated things like the heart of the race the book to her she was also depicted on the one pound note of the brixton pound and constantly appears and reappears on lists of inspirational black figures black women black british figures british figures um because you know that is just the strength of her legacy of such a short and brief life Um, And I want to leave us, leave this episode with a quote about Olive Morris um, that's taken from the heart of the race. Um, And it's about her fighting spirit. I don't know who said this. It's an extract. Um, The heart of the race was created by um, lots of interviews, um, but they're all done anonymously. So we don't know who exactly said this, but it would have been a black woman who was part of these movements. Um, And I just want to leave you with the words um, that are said by this person as I think they really do sum up her, her whole life, her childhood, um, and all the things she achieved. Olive and I went to the same school. Even then, she had that streak in her, in school. They would have called it rebelliousness or disruptiveness, but it was really a fearlessness about challenging injustice at whatever level. This made others weary of her. She was so obviously a fighter. I saw her once confronting a policeman. It might have been when she was evicted. She went at him like a whirlwind and cussed him to heaven. 
and this policeman looked really taken aback. He didn't know how to deal with someone who had no fear of him. He was meant to represent the big arm of the law, but because she was angry and she knew he was in the wrong, she didn't hesitate. She would take anybody on like that, even people in organisations, if she thought that someone needed to expose their hypocrisy for mouthing slogans and living a lie. Because of that, a lot of them saw her as a pain in the neck, and she was too. She'd fight them physically if it was necessary. If you moved with Olive, you couldn't be a weak heart. She gave a lot of support to so many sisters, though, when they came under pressure from the brothers at meetings or whenever. She was a real example. You didn't see it then, of course, but that fearlessness of hers and that genuine commitment she showed to the work she did made her stand out, made her special. I remember when Olive was in Manchester. I went up to an education meeting she was organising with the Manchester Black Women's Group. And it struck me at the time how at home she was away from home. She had gone up to university to study, but she made contact with people so easily that before you knew it, she was right in there with the black women in Moss Side, organising with them, taking things on. She could easily have found a student clique on campus, but instead she sought out her people and just carried on the work she'd been doing in Brixton. But then... She always was hot on personal commitment. Not just showing willing, but showing determination. Her life is a kind of symbol to the people who knew her. People like Olive inspire you to resist. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the History Hotline. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend to tell a friend. To continue the conversation about black history, head over to our social media platforms at the History Hotline on Instagram and at the History HL on Twitter.